Hello there, citizens and fans of Ruda. Thank you for returning to us for the third episode of The Treasure of Boneyard Bay, A Witch Hunter Tale. As we've made clear on social media, we have made a mistake in the intro and outro of the second episode. And of course, that is something we have to correct. We mentioned that the standard edition, playing on YouTube and Podbean, was about 15 hours long, while actually 14 hours and a half would be more accurate. The extended edition that is available on Patreon and Bandcamp is not, as we said, 20 minutes longer, but actually 50 minutes longer. So that's a big difference, of course. We apologize for this miscalculation. I was always better at languages than at math. But now you've got the correct information, I think. No, I'm quite sure. If you're curious about the differences between both versions, we refer to the intro and outro of episode 2, the information accompanying episode 1 on Patreon, or the written description of our podcast episodes. There will be 12 episodes in total, so 9 more after this one. Is that correct? Uh, wait, um... 12 minus 3, that's... 12 minus 2 is, uh, 10, and then minus 1 is nine. Yeah, so yes, that's it. Nine more episodes. Most of the episodes will be about an hour long, the first ones will be a bit shorter overall, and the final episodes will be longer. The last two actually uh, almost two hours, I think. We've got a Patreon page that helps us monetize these stories so we can create more of them in a shorter time than we did before. Without the support of these wonderful people, we'd never have been able to launch such a long audiobook in such a relatively short time. We got four new patrons this month and we'd like to welcome them and mention them here. We have one new Witch Hunter Master, Joshua Ward, who is actually a returning patron. One Captain of the Guard, um, I think it's pronounced Dragan Chirik, but I'm not sure. I'm sorry if I butchered your name. A very talented illustrator. And two Guardsmen, Hannes Fusch and Joshua Soros. Thank you guys for deciding to support us and helping us defend and expand the world of Hruda. Hruda. If you're considering becoming a patron, even if it's only for $1 a month or $12 a year, check out our Patreon page on patreon.com audioepics. Among the many rewards are exclusive content like stories you can't find anywhere else online, exclusive updates and lots of exclusive merchandise. We'd also like to thank you for liking, commenting and sharing on YouTube and Podbean and social media, for your reviews on Amazon and Goodreads, because, you know, you can review the book version um, of our stories, and of course, your purchases on Bandcamp. If you are listening on YouTube and you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you do so and click that notification bell so that you will always know when something new comes out. Or if you are listening in podcast form, activate the RSS feed if you don't want to miss anything. And of course, we thank you for sharing this journey with us and hope you'll enjoy the third episode of The Treasure of Boneyard Bay with two new chapters, The Sea and The Rendezvous. The Sea It was a perfect day to set sail. The city of Brughaven was already disappearing from view 
as the Theresia cleaved her way through the calm waters of the Western Sea. Ludlow stood looking at the waves, enjoying the way the wind stroked his hair, reminding him of Maria's fingers. He sighed. Everything reminded him of her. It hurt, but in a strange way, it also made the small moments that make up life more beautiful. He scoffed at himself. Maria's death had turned him into a wretch, shaken out of his wits by unbearable missing at the slightest provocation of his memories. Then again, he had seen the deep grief in the captain's eyes when he had told them about the real Theresia and their child. And looking at the man now, he seemed happy. Ludlow wondered how long ago it was that he had lost his family. Just then, he was brutishly pulled out of his reverie by the charming sound of a seasick flatlander vomiting into the ocean right beside him. <coughs> Gustav, I thought you were a seafarer, Ludlow said. And the waters are perfectly calm today, too. Gustav raised his head and stared at him, looking sweaty and pale. <laughs> it's not that. It's these muscles. They upset my stomach. Muscles aren't meant to be breakfast, amigo, Alvarado said. Especially not pickled ones, I suppose, Gustav admitted. Chappelle approached them. I just had a word with the captain. It seems he's slightly worried about something. What is there to be worried about? Alvarado asked, leaning with his back against the railing and basking in the sun with his eyes closed. Something called Tubalar, apparently. Chappelle replied. You mean Tubalbar, Gustav said, trying and failing to improve his current appearance in front of the pretty Goldorian. What's that? Ludlow asked, looking around for Federhel, but he was nowhere to be seen on deck. A sea serpent, Gustav said. Legendary one. Let me guess, Alvarado said without opening his eyes. You once defeated this creature in single combat using nothing but a wooden spoon? <laughs> Ludlow and Chappelle chuckled. No, actually, Gustav said seriously, you clearly don't know anything about Tubalbar. He is a monster beyond anything you can imagine. They call him the Great Worm of the Western Sea. I think the Felskaren worship him as one of their gods. He migrates in circles around their island, always traveling counterclockwise, so you can more or less predict his location depending on the time of year. Sometimes he travels more to the south, though, into these waters where we are now. I think I heard Captain Brukhoff say that Dubalbar usually reaches the southern end of Feldskar in late spring or early summer, Chappelle said. And it's hard to predict when he will turn north again. Please don't remind me, Gustav said, looking genuinely terrified. Or perhaps it was still the nausea, Ludlow wondered. He followed Chappelle's gaze as she looked towards Master von Baumeister and Turmgard, who were standing on the quarterdeck, looking rather tense as well. I wonder what sea serpent tastes like, Alvarado mused. It would probably be good in a nice steak stew. They were approached by a crew member who spoke Flatlandish and introduced himself as Jope. Jope guided them around the ship and showed them their cabins. 
Ludlow was surprised the companions all had one of their own, while most of the regular crew had to sleep together. Gustav was especially pleased with the large chest where he could store his luggage, while Chappelle seemed apprehensive about the idea of sleeping in a hammock. In Esclavia, we use them on land as well, for relaxation. They are much more comfortable than you may think, Alvarado reassured her. Once they were settled in, they were all invited to dine with the captain in his spacious and luxuriously decorated quarters. A single large window gently invited the soft summer evening light, while the candles on the table completed the illumination. Master von Baumeister demanded most of Captain Brokelhoff's attention, lecturing him about the history of the witch hunter uniform. But to Ludlow's surprise, the captain seemed genuinely interested in the topic. Eventually, the conversation did shift to sea travel and the route they would be taking. Chappelle took the opportunity to mention sea serpents again. Captain Brokelhoff looked rather worried at that, but then he smiled. Sea serpents are not so rare in these parts, and most of them know better than to harass a powerful ship such as ours. These animals learned about cannonballs and harpoons long ago. You can see them rising above the surface from time to time, but uh, they'll leave us alone. But I heard something about a particularly big one that swims around Felskar. Chappelle pressed. To Balbar, the captain said. The way he spoke the name made it sound like the creature was his arch-nemesis. Some call him the Ur-Serpent. The Felskaran worship him as the dragon god of the sea. In truth, he's just a very old, very large and very grouchy animal. We usually avoid these parts of the sea around this time of year, if at all possible. But of course, as Master von Baumeister made clear, your journey cannot wait. Do we have to worry about the Balba? Ludlow asked. The captain took his time to drink from his goblet of wine before answering. There is a small chance of an encounter, he admitted then. But it really is quite small. This is the time of year when he reaches the southern end of Felskar and we might actually be able to catch a glimpse of him from a distance, but as long as we stay away from his territory, we should be safe. Of course, the smaller sea serpents are sighted much more often in these parts, but they are less of a threat. Mr. Finsterdunkel informed us that sometimes Tubalbar ventures further down south. Did he? The captain smiled, looking at Gustav, who was too busy sucking out the contents of a clam to pay notice. Well, yes, it has happened, Brokelhoff said. But only when he is provoked somehow. Like I said, Tubalbar is grouchy and likes to be left alone. Anyway, we only have to pay extra attention for the first few days. The closer we get to Loinvu, the less likely we are to encounter vicious sea creatures. That seemed to satisfy Chappelle. You hail from Goldor, I hear, the captain said. Yes, captain, I am from Loinvu. Captain Brokelhoff's eyes and his smile both widened. Ah, Loinvu. La cité du vin et des belles femmes. But then I have good news for you. We are on our way there right now. Loin vu? Vraiment? Chapelle exclaimed with a gasp, her blue eyes shining with excitement. It's on the way, and we would do well to replenish some of our provisions before we make the final stretch to Esclavia, von Baumeister clarified in a tone that indicated their voyage was not supposed to be a pleasure trip. 
Especially mine, Captain Brokelhoff said, somewhat ruining the mood the witch hunter master had set. Our Slovenian wine just doesn't compare, does it? He added, looking sadly at the contents of his goblet before swilling down the remainder. Ludlov had travelled quite a bit around the northern continent after his graduation as a magistrate, when he had met his wife, but he had never been on a sea voyage before. Resting in a hammock while the ship gently cradled him on the high waves was surprisingly relaxing, and he had less trouble going to sleep than usual. There was something about being isolated far away from the lands where evildoers dwelt that calmed his mind. There were no nightmares that night, and he awoke well-rested. He washed himself, got dressed, and left his cabin in search of breakfast. Unfortunately, the morning quiet was disturbed by a loud cry from the deck. Ludlov hastened to the deck and saw several crew members gathered together at the starboard side, pointing, yelling, and pushing each other aside. Turmgard, Federhel and Gustav arrived with him. The sailors made room for the passengers to take a look. At first, Ludlov couldn't see anything except grey waves, but then he caught a glimpse of something dark rising to the surface and quickly disappearing again. Couldn't it be a whale? he commented, assuming that all that talk and speculation about the serpent had sparked their imagination. Probably, Tomgard said. These sailors are all a bit overexcited. It's not a whale, Federhel said, pointing at the sea again. Now Ludlov could see it very clearly. A row of spikes on top of an elongated scaly mass. That's a sea serpent, no mistake, Gustav cried out. How big do you think it is? Ludlov said. This is one of the smaller ones, if you can believe it, sir said one of the sailors. It has to be as long as the Theresia herself, Federhel said. Let's not take any chances and be rid of it, Gustav said, and then suddenly he was gone. Where's he going? Ludlov asked, but no one had an answer. On the quarterdeck, the captain was handing his spyglass to Master von Baumeister. Chapelle and Blessed Salenheim were standing nearby. The scaly creature seemed to ignore the Teresia completely, just swimming alongside at a distance. All of a sudden, everyone was startled by the deafening blast of a cannon being fired. Smoke rose from the hull of the Teresia below them, accompanied by a triumphant cry. The sea serpent immediately dove underwater again and was gone. A minute later, Gustav appeared on deck, laughing. <laughs> what a cowardly beast! One little cannonball and off it goes! Captain Brokelhoff came running down the stairs from the quarterdeck, looking furious. Von Baumeister followed in his footsteps. The Theresia's guns are to be fired by her crew only, at the command of her captain only, not by a passenger! He shouted. Sorry, sir, I didn't know, Gustav said. If you were a member of the crew, you would be keelhauled, 
grunted the captain, standing intimidatingly close to the Flatlander. Ludloff thought of Captain Brokelhoff as an easy, amicable type, but Gustav's behavior would have infuriated anyone. If you were a member of the Order, I would have had you shot where you stand, von Baumeister said. Ludloff hoped he was exaggerating a bit to make a point, but he couldn't be sure. Gustav didn't look the least bit intimidated. Well, I got rid of the sea serpent for you, didn't I? Hold on! Shrieked a panicked voice from the crow's nest. Everyone looked up at the sailor and then at each other. An instant later, there was a massive thud resonating through the wood beneath their feet. Alvarado dropped his breakfast onto the deck as the Teresia began to rise up, then veered back down and tilted heavily starboard. Men who had been standing on the port side found themselves losing their footing and sliding down onto the deck as a truly enormous shape began to emerge from the sea. The Teresia rocked back again, causing many to lose their balance once more. Ludlov just held on fast to the railing. There were screams everywhere as a sea serpent's head appeared, water streaming down from all sides. It was dark green, as large as a house, and vaguely shaped like a horse's head, with strange beard-like tendrils dangling from its chin and throat. Long, thin, black spikes ran along its scalp and over its back like a mane. The serpentine form rose up higher and higher, already reaching halfway to the main mast and still extending. Its eyes were silver orbs lying in deep, dark sockets, with sharp, spiky eyebrows of bone, making it look both intelligent and malicious. The colossal creature was staring down at the tiny people on board the Teresia like a man watching ants crawl around in his backyard. The screams died down and made way for a horrifying moment of tense silence. As the monster's head finally held still. Towering above the ship, its mouth level with the very top of the main mast. Then Captain Brokelhoff cried out, and drew his sword. Ludlov had no idea what to do except stare up at the monstrosity. None of his morning training sessions, with or without General Hoskiv, could have ever prepared him for this. Man the guns! The captain shouted as sailors tried to make their way below deck. Tubalbar's mouth opened, revealing rows of jagged teeth like serrated swords and a long, worm-like tongue that unrolled from its widening jaw until a deafening roar emerged from the creature's open gullet. Bringing with it a hot gust of wind that stank of dead fish and refuse. Ludlow found himself frozen, unable to respond to such a vast and incomprehensible terror. This was not a sea serpent. It was a sea dragon. All around him, men were shouting, running around or climbing up into the shrouds. Somewhere in the midst of all the chaos, he saw Blessed Hula Zeelenheim, standing calmly in the middle of the deck, her eyes closed and her arms spread wide in a gesture of blessing. 
she was deep in prayer. Captain Brokelhoff ordered her to find cover, but either she hadn't heard him or she chose to ignore him. Soon after, the captain was bellowing orders to his crew, who were rushing in every direction to obey. All Ludlov could do was stand and watch the monster as it regarded the ship with a demonic intelligence in its eyes. He was certain it was simply studying its enemies in preparation of some sort of attack. It arched its long neck as the spikes on its back rose straight up like the hair of an angry cat. Its mouth opened wide and the head trembled slightly. Pistols were fired and axes were thrown, but Tubalba didn't even seem to notice it, its jaw opening impossibly wide. He heard someone cry out, and then a torrent of green slime was ejected from the monster's throat, splattering all over the main mast and sail, which began to bubble and corrode. It's some sort of acid! He heard a voice scream. Ludlov! He shook as he felt a hand on his shoulder and turned around swiftly. It was Alvarado. Time for us to prove our worth, amigo, the Esclavan said with a smile. Ludlov didn't know what to say or do, and just looked at him. Stop right there, you brave fool, said Gustav, who came running up from below deck with his huge backpack. We have to. Several cannons were fired at once. The creature roared in pain and anger, and momentarily faded from view in a haze of smoke. Then it appeared again behind the ship, and its huge head veered down crashing its teeth into the poop deck, shattering wood and iron. They saw one of its silver eyes smoldering with hatred and malice. The eye! Gustav cried out in a shrill voice. Get the eye! Alvarado drew his pistol, but he was too late. Tubalbar already raised his head again, looking down as if the ancient creature were studying the ship for weaknesses. Gustav was down on one knee, busy unloading something large from his backpack. Alvarado ran towards the quarterdeck, where von Baumeister, Turmgard and Chappelle stood, all firing at the monster with their pistols, clearly to no avail. When he saw their bravery, Ludlov was suddenly shaken out of his frozen terror. He had to do something, but pistols didn't seem to make much difference against this legendary beast. As if he had heard Ludlov's thoughts, Gustav shoved the weapon into his arms. What is this? Ludlov asked. It looked like an oversized crossbow that wasn't loaded with a bolt, but with a strange orb of glass. I call her Trin, after my nanny when I was small, Gustav said proudly. How do I use it? Ludlov asked impatiently. You shoot it, Ludlov, like any other crossbow. Now, I heard you were a good shot, so I'll let you do the honors. The creature was moving towards the front of the ship again, planning another attack. Be patient, Initiate, said the Flatlander. Go for the eye, only the eye, nothing else will do. Ludlov believed him and nodded. The other witch hunters were running over the deck towards the forecastle. Chappelle had switched to her daggers and was throwing them at the creature now, not missing a single one. They had little impact on Tubalba though as they just remained stuck in his thick hide. Chappelle was growing increasingly irritated with her lack of success. When he heard the Flatlander's voice, Ludlov refocused on the task at hand. 
You have one shot, Gustav said. One. Alvarado came standing next to him. We cannot keep firing blindly away at its scales. It is useless, he said. We have to find its weakness and exploit it. The eye, Gustav said again. Get the eye. That is a difficult target indeed, amigo, but you are right. They heard a loud creaking and splintering of wood, and then suddenly, the entire crow's nest and the flag of lion crest came tumbling down, crashing onto the deck behind them, right next to the priestess, who was still standing perfectly still, only her lips moving in prayer. The sea serpent uncoiled its sinuous neck and tore away the jib sail in one fell swoop. The witch hunters stood frozen in place, watching in sheer horror. Captain Brokohoff himself was climbing into the shrouds, carrying a very long rifle on his back. Other sailors were still readying their firearms or rushing to get new throwing axes or spears from the hold. What's the range on this thing? Ludlov asked Gustav, who shrugged. You'll need to get close, he said. Ludlov cursed himself for his earlier inaction and started running in the direction of the forecastle. He made his way beside the other witch hunters, held up the crossbow and aimed. Tubalbar seemed to be studying the ship again. Or perhaps the ancient worm was actually looking at the ship's crew and passengers. Ludlov thought he had an aim on the monster's eye, but he needed to get closer. And so he made his way to the front of the deck. He had his fingers on the trigger when another shot sounded from behind and the mighty serpent was hit on its nose. It shrank back momentarily, shrieking in pain. Ludlov instinctively pulled the trigger and saw the orb flying past and landing harmlessly into the briny waters. No! He had destroyed their only chance of doing any real damage to this creature. Despair washed over him. Let me through, let me through, he heard Gustav say behind him. He turned and saw the Flatlander making his way between the witch hunters who were all busy reloading their weapons. Gustav ran up to Ludlov and offered him another orb. I thought you only had one, Ludlov said. I just said that to make sure you wouldn't waste it, Gustav explained. But that clearly didn't work. Ludlov didn't know whether he wanted to strangle or kiss the man, and simply accepted the ammunition. Tubalbar was angry now, blood dripping from the creature's nose, its head trembling once more as it made ready to spew its acid again. Get closer, Gustav said as Ludlov was reloading the crossbow. This really is the last orb. Ludlov gave the Flatlander an incredulous frown and loaded the orb. It made a sharp click as it was set in the weapon. Then Ludlov suddenly realized what Gustav had just suggested. Closer, he repeated. There wasn't any further to go on the ship's deck. Gustav inclined his head towards the bowsprit. Draw its attention, he added, then stepped back and looked at the enormous creature as it opened its mouth wide and readied itself to cover the mast where the captain was located with acid. Ludlov hated to admit it, but Gustav was right. He carefully climbed onto the bowsprit and slowly made his way as far ahead as he could, holding on tight with both legs and one arm, his other clasping the crossbow. The monster seemed to ignore him, 
too busy with its plan to avenge its bloody nose. When he was on the middle of the peak, Ludlow realized he could climb no further. He tried to sit upright, but the ship was moving too violently. He lost his balance and almost fell off. He hung upside down now, clasping the bowsprit tight with his legs and holding the crossbow in both hands. In his topsy-turvy view, he saw the wild waves above him, a mass of scales below it, and the vastness of the sky at the bottom. Somewhere in the midst of all this chaos, he could see a silver eye, small and impossible to hit. Jubalba spat, and he heard the horrible acid being sprayed onto the sails behind him. Men were screaming, firearms were being shot, wood and rope were crashing down onto the deck, and the spiteful worm neared its head towards the Teresia as if it were gloating and enjoying the damage it had wrought. In that moment, its eye came closer, and Ludlov believed he could hit it. But the trajectory would fail if he were to shoot from this upside-down position. So with an enormous effort, he tried to swing back on top of the wooden peak, but failed and almost dropped the crossbow into the sea. He was still dangling upside down when he heard a familiar voice calling his name. Take my hand, amigo! Take my hand! Alvarado had climbed onto the bowsprit and held out his arm towards Ludlov, who exerted all his strength to move his torso upward and grab the Esclavian's hand. Behind Alvarado, he saw Gustav, who was cheering them both on. Alvarado pulled with all his might and eventually managed to get Ludlov back on top of the bowsprit. Every muscle was burning and his head swam in dizziness, but he had no time to recover. Ludlov was on his belly, with Alvarado holding his legs down onto the bowsprit so he wouldn't lose his balance again. With both arms, Ludlov grasped the crossbow. He closed one eye and aimed carefully. Look at me, you wretched worm! He cried out to Tobalbar, and he felt the creature's malevolent gaze turning towards him. Then he shot. The orb flew right into Tobalbar's eye and exploded. The shards of glass in its eye had to be painful enough, but there was an eruption of blue flame followed by a thick black cloud of smoke that spread out all over the side of the monster's head and burned it like dark fire. It screamed in agony, louder than all the guns of the Teresia if they had been fired simultaneously. Charred scales stumbled down into the sea as the massive head recoiled far back, trailing inky smoke in the sky. Ludlov caught a glimpse of Tubalba's half-ruined head before it crashed down into the waves and the colossal serpent swam away. The waters in front of him rose and crashed against the bow of the Teresia, utterly engulfing Ludlov. He thought he was drowning for a moment, but still held on tight to the bowsprit. Then the water receded, the ship rose up again out of the brine, and he heard a momentous cheer erupting behind him.
The Rendezvous. Whether Tubalba was dead or had simply fled to lick his wounds, no one could tell. But they were all relieved to be away from the cursed waters where they had met the great worm. The Teresia had lost several sails and the crow's nest was gone. Tubalba's teeth had wrought havoc to the deck and the hull, but the damage had been mostly aesthetic. Six sailors had been burned by the acid, two of whom had died. The man in the crow's nest had also perished. In truth, it was a nearly miraculous outcome for an encounter with the dreaded Ur serpent. The sails could be repaired right away, although one of them had to be replaced with a plain white one. The flag of Lioncrest could fly once more as well, even though it was torn and ragged. The monster's attack had also destroyed the two rowboats that had been attached to the starboard side of the hull, leaving only the two on the port side. Apart from what had happened to his crew, Captain Brokelhoff's greatest regret was that they would arrive in Rainvue with the Theresia looking less than herself. The deadly victims of the attack were called Tom, Cornel and Evert. Wrapped in linen, they were given a brief but solemn ceremony led by Blessed Zelenheim, which concluded in a eulogy from the captain. Then they were entrusted to the endless waters. After the departure of the monster, Ludlov had been showered with adulation. Almost everyone on the ship seemed to think more highly of him now, especially the sailors and his fellow initiates. Even Master von Baumeister had taken notice of his achievement and approved. Gustav had patted Ludlov on the back like a proud father, clearly convinced he deserved a share in his triumph, as he had provided the means to their victory. Afterwards, the Flatlander had taken Trine the crossbow from his backpack and thrown it into the sea, claiming it was useless now without the glass spheres. Nevertheless, Ludlov was sure the extra room in his backpack would soon be filled again with other trinkets on this treasure hunt. Only one person remained cold in his interactions with him after the serpent's defeat. Turmgard, who obviously felt threatened in his position as von Baumeister's favorite. The witch hunter had nothing to fear from Ludlov, though, who felt no urgent need for the master's approval. Of course he was hoping for a positive evaluation after this endeavor, if he survived, that was. He still wanted to become a witch hunter, as it was the best way to find out who had killed his wife and punished them. And of course he knew that von Baumeister's testimony held a lot of weight and would certainly help him reach that goal. The truth was simply that Ludlov didn't like the man. He had always held Lord Adomir and Lady Hoskiv in high esteem, in part for their uncompromising loyalty to the principles of the Order, and he recognized that sometimes those principles were hard. Von Baumeister, on the other hand, was a different personality altogether. Ludlov found him haughty rather than confident, and callous rather than strict. Still, Alvarado had spoken well of the master, and Ludlov trusted the Esclavian's judgment. Alvarado himself had also enjoyed his fair share of compliments. 
I am just grateful to have witnessed the attack of such a magnificent beast of mythical proportions, he had said. If I had become lunch to the likes of Tubalbar, it would almost have been an honor. And by the way, he had added conspiratorially, it would no doubt have been the best meal the creature had ever had. Apparently, I taste pretty good, according to the ladies. <laughs> of course, uh, that was before I signed up to become a witch hunter, he had corrected himself hastily. Most had chuckled. The sun was setting in a splendorous display of purple and orange as the Teresia continued her journey over peaceful waters that reflected the warm light, making it almost seem as if the sea were on fire. There was no sign of the great worm anymore. The beast was gone. Despite all the praise Ludlow had received, he didn't feel particularly heroic. As he revisited the past events in his mind, he realized he had simply been standing there for the longest time frozen in fear. He even recalled the two crew members who were now clearing the deck of the last souvenirs of the attack, bravely trying to fend off the Ur Serpent. He'd heard Captain Brokelhoff call them Piet and Neil, and based on their speech, he had concluded he was a Flatlander and she a Lioncrester. Naila must have been the first female crew member he'd ever encountered on a ship. As he watched Piet and Neela clean the deck, he noticed they obviously knew each other well. Looking up from their scrubbing and cleaning, the two occasionally shared a gaze. Ludlov knew right away those looks weren't just expressions of shared relief after surviving an encounter with a legendary monster. Instead, he was witnessing an awakening love between two people. Ludlov was sitting on a barrel watching Alvarado and Federhel playing cards from a distance. Blessed Ula Zelenheim stood on the forecastle with widespread hands, praying a litany to the goddess for the further protection of the Teresia. She had become much more proactive in her duties ever since the attack of the sea serpent, Ludlov noticed. Then again, that was hardly surprising, unlike the sudden appearance of Chappelle from below deck, carrying a book. She had been very quiet and reserved lately, and Ludlov wondered why that was. Chappelle was a mystery to him, a frail young woman, beautiful but pale and delicate in all her features, with large, innocent eyes. She didn't exactly look the part of a witch hunter. Her hat even seemed somewhat oversized and looked a bit comical on her. Seeing her made him wonder what Maria might have looked like as a witch hunter. Still. Chappelle had reached the rank and clearly knew how to handle herself. Looks could deceive, as he knew all too well. As she turned to him, he realized he had been staring at her, so he looked away self-consciously. To his surprise, Chappelle approached him and started talking. I think I know that look in your eye, she said. Ludlov didn't know what to say and just looked at her curiously. You miss someone. He felt relieved that she hadn't misinterpreted his gaze and nodded. How did you know? Chappelle leaned on the railing, which had been repaired with a rather unsightly wooden board. She was looking out over the sea, 
as the wind playfully stroked her golden hair. Everyone on board probably does, of course, she clarified. But in you I sense something more, deeper. Someone was taken from you. You've probably heard from the others, he replied. It irked him that his personal tragedy had been doing the rounds as nothing more than a bit of gossip, even though he understood the nature of these things. He couldn't blame anyone, realizing he might have talked just as casually about it if he had been in their place. Actually, no one has told me anything about you, except that you were good with firearms and crossbows as well, apparently. She smiled warmly, which made her look even more beautiful, especially in the light of the sunset. I wouldn't call that thing Gustav shoved into my hands a crossbow, but thank you, Rudloff said, returning her smile. So, how did you know? He asked, genuinely curious. Do you have a gift? Nothing arcanic in it, she said reassuringly, not knowing that he would not have disapproved. I just know what missing looks like. And what it feels like, I presume, Ludlow added, when he noticed a faraway look in her eyes. She smiled and nodded, then watched the sunset in silence. We've turned south today, Ludlow said. We're getting closer to the coast of Goldor. I think soon we might even see the cliffs where the convent of Sancta Brisea is located. He tried to find her eyes, but she was still looking away. Does that stir up memories? Chappelle turned to him. How do you know that? Ludlow shrugged and couldn't help but smile. It's nothing arcanic or anything. Chappelle returned his smile then leaned back against the railing. I suppose I have been a bit absent lately, she admitted. Very well, I will tell you, but please keep it to yourself. As you wish, Ludlow said. But first, I want to know about you, Chappelle said. Ludlow was a bit taken aback by that, but it was a fair request. He sighed looking at the two men who were still deeply focused on their game. I was a magistrate before, as you may have heard already. Chappelle didn't reply, but just listened. I was happily married until my wife was brutally murdered. It had been some sort of ritual. It was hard to speak of and he couldn't bear going into more detail. It was clear there was some sort of dark magic involved. Soon after, I learned about a demonic cult called the Black Sickle. As I studied accounts of their modus operandi, it became apparent very quickly that they were behind my wife's murder. I just didn't know anything more than that, and, and I needed to. He looked at her, hoping she would understand. I wanted to make sure no one else would ever have to suffer what I went through. That's why I decided to become a witch hunter. All the pain had come flooding back as he had told the story. But he felt an enormous wave of relief washing over him. Just as he had experienced when he had first talked about what had happened to Lord Adomir and Lady Hoskiv. 
Chappelle looked at him with compassion in her eyes, but not pity. And for that, he was grateful. No, I understand why you are the only witch hunter wearing a wedding band. Ludlov stroked his hand and briefly touched it. He'd never even realized he'd never taken it off. And I see now why you have been so close to Lord Adomir, she continued, since he has been investigating the Black Sickle for so long. Yes, Ludlov said. He was the one who invited me to join the Order. Chappelle went silent again, apparently thinking about what he had said. I grew up in Loinvou, in a well-to-do family, but after the death of my father in a stupid duel for honor, my mother lost all of her fortune and we wound up seeking a new beginning on a farm in the countryside. In truth, at my young age, the change was a welcome one. We had to work hard, but life was simple and beautiful. One day, my mother and brother went out to trade meat and vegetables in Crestalese, a small town right at the edge of the Bodouac forest. They never returned. Ludlow remained silent. He had never been to that part of the Druidic realm, but even he knew about the rumors surrounding the Bodouac forest. I hired a ranger who went looking with me along the forest road. We found the cart completely abandoned. My mother, my brother, the horse, even the food, all were gone. I still had hope because there were clear horse tracks leading into the forest. I thought maybe they had escaped whatever danger they had encountered, but the ranger told me that it looked like someone had led the horse at a slow pace, not ridden it in haste. We followed the trail but eventually lost it. The tracker did find one thing for me. My mother's locket. He gave it to me, told me he was sorry and refused to accept payment when he saw the grief in my eyes. I went back home knowing I was all alone in the world. Didn't you have any other family members? No. My uncle, who had helped us buy the farm, had died the year before. I had a few friends, but no real close connections. Eventually, the missing became too much, and I went back to Boudouac, hoping to find... I don't know... something. You went alone? How old were you at the time? I was 13 years old. My mother had always told me there were people in the woods who lived at one with nature, as she had called it. I loved her, but she was a naive woman. She used to make little charms out of sticks and cloth to protect us from harm and make poultices, salves and the like, to soften toothaches and sore backs. Did they work? Chappelle seemed surprised by Ludlow's question. She shrugged. Maybe, sometimes. We never got sick when we were living in the countryside, unlike my uncle. Chappelle regarded Ludlow very seriously. Whatever the value of her remedies, my mother had misjudged the inhabitants of the forest. At one with nature. She repeated, shaking her head and trying to hold back tears. I don't even think they were human, Ludlow. 
As I made my way through the woods and it became darker, I heard sounds of people, but I didn't see anyone. Screams, giggles, grunts, moans, growls. I could not even tell what they were expressing, just that they became less human and more animal the further I went. I still don't know where I found the courage to continue. All I had to protect myself was a torch, a dagger and my mother's locket. Eventually, I found a place to sleep in a small cave. I made a fire there and discovered there were paintings on the rocky walls. Paintings? Of what? Chappelle shrugged. Animals, trees, some things I didn't understand. Perhaps they were symbols, but... You know what else I found there, Ludlow? He looked at her quizzically. A primitive leather pouch lying on the ground. I opened it and inside were teeth. Human teeth. Pulled out, root and all. Covered in dry blood. I turned around and ran. I know it isn't possible, but to my memory, I ran for days without pausing. Eventually, I left the Bodewijk forest, but kept running. I slept in fields and stables. I stole food from farmers and villages and just made my way east until at last, I arrived at the lake of Carlion. It was fully dark now. Everyone else had left the deck leaving Ludlow and Chappelle alone with only the stars for company. They say that in the waters of that lake you can see your greatest desire. It's true. I saw it. Ludlow just looked at her. I saw myself carrying a rapier and a pistol, killing every last one of those creatures. There was no more tremble in her voice now, only a cold, Hard determination. A fisherman and his wife found me. They clothed me, fed me and healed me. From there, I went to Bukolia, to the convent of the Sacred Fire, where I stayed for three years. I could have become a sister of repentance and lived a peaceful life. The hatred had subsided, but I was still determined to bring an end to this evil. And eventually, I left and went to Seven Peaks to become a witch hunter. The story had bereft Ludlow of all speech. Chappelle was perhaps 10 years his junior, but she had already suffered more than he had. He could only look at her and pray to the goddess that she would someday find peace again. So you see, Ludlow, Chappelle said, as she looked out over the dark waters. The customs of those innocents who live at one with nature. There is nothing admirable about them. Although my mother's dabbling in that filth did save my life. Ludlow nodded, unable to say anything more. Every confession day, I still ask the priest to cleanse me of all the influences those things might still have on me. Chappelle concluded. What about your farm? Ludlow asked. You never went back? 
She shook her head. I don't want to. I can't bear it. What about Loinville? He asked. I look forward to revisiting Loinville, Chappelle said. It reminds me of my father and the way my family was once, long ago. During the innocent days of my childhood, it will be good to set foot there again. Ludlow smiled carefully. Good. I hope I didn't give you nightmares, Initiate. Chappelle said, forcing a bit of mirth into her voice. Not at all. I thank you for sharing your story. It's good to meet someone who understands, she said. That's true. They were both silent for a bit. Well, it's late. Very late. I should prepare for night prayers, Chappelle said. Good night, witch hunter, Ludlow said with a respectful nod. As she turned, something dropped out of the book Chappelle had been carrying. It was a folded page. He bowed down to pick it up. He wanted to tell her she dropped something, but Chappelle was already gone. Curiously, Ludlow opened the folded piece of paper. On it was a crude sketch of the black sickle. Thank you for listening to the third episode of The Treasure of Boneyard Bay, a witch hunter tale. If it weren't for our wonderful patrons, this story would have been released in 2074. But these awesome people gave us the adrenaline we needed to publish this in 2022. Arno Teva, Caitlin Bredenkamp, Kat Mosseri, Osarion, Ryan Stock, Joshua Ward, Mix and Match, Joseph Stowell, Peter Strandkrone, Amy and Dallas Austin, and Matt Petain. If you enjoyed this episode, give it a like or share it with your friends. You can also activate the RSS feed to get notified of our next podcast episodes on Podbean. The next chapter is called The Wine and will be premiered next week. So you have seven days to purchase a good bottle of red wine to go along with that episode. If you can't wait that long for the next episode, we get that as we made you wait quite some time, you can purchase the entire story on Bandcamp or join us on Patreon to get hold of the extended edition of this story, which makes this 14 and a half hour epic longer by 15 minutes, containing some additional scenes that explore some of the characters' backgrounds and lore of the setting, provide more action and drama, and even contains a surprise epilogue that will grab fans of Witch Hunter in particular. Check out our Patreon page and consider supporting us from as little as $1 a month that would be a mere $12 a year. It would mean the world to us, or at least breakfast in a cheap cafe in a creepy dark dead-end alley in Antwerp, which also seems like fun and might lead us to our next story. Thank you for listening to The Treasure of Boneyard Bay, and we hope you'll return next week for episode 1 plus another plus another and uh, 4. Bye-bye!